0: So chapter 32 uh, gets back now to the historical material of the book of Exodus. And then Numbers will pick up from here, where the book of Numbers, they begin the wandering through the wilderness until they get to the promised land. So chapter 32 is this very infamous as well as famous chapter of the golden calf. Now let's, uh, let's refresh our, is everybody with me now? In terms of where we've dealt with the tabernacle, God had given him the detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle, what each part of the tabernacle was to be, and that's what we went over last week. And in the handout I gave you and in the packet, there are some depictions of that. And we talked about how each part of that is fulfilled in Christ. But now, remember uh, one or two things of, of, of the historical setting. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb. As it's sometimes called in the Bible and so they told us when we studied that a couple of weeks ago he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights so that's a fairly extended period of time and so what is happening on at the base of the mountain is pure idolatry and it is going to uh... wow Thank you very much. Um, he's just enriched me with an eternally significant blessing. Reece's. And Fred had laid three on my plate earlier, so I'm leaving this building with richness of God's blessing overwhelming me. So thank you, both of you. But it caused me to lose my train of thought. i talk
1: about sharing every once in
0: a Yes, but not in this class. Uh, <laughs> There are when it comes to Reese's peanut butter cups, I'm the most selfish person on earth. <laughs> uh, but if you really want one, I'll give it to no. you. <clears throat> no, I'm just kidding. I lost my train of thought. But uh, yeah, M- Moses is on Mount Horeb. Yeah, Moses is on Mount Horeb, 40 days and 40 nights. So it's a very significant challenge for the people. And here is where we see what is often a sad situation, a leader goes along with a crowd. Instead of a leader leading, it goes along with a crowd. Do you understand what I mean by that sentence? Aaron, instead of leading, goes along with what the people want, and it's, it's very sad. But there are a number of things that I want to stress here as we go through this, because it's the, the dialogue that Moses has with God, once this is all discovered and so on, that is extremely significant. Verse 1, chapter 32, is uh, where we pick up now the historical narrative. And uh, I think is an intentional contrast between the leadership of Moses and the leadership of Aaron. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods, some translations have, or a god, who will go before us. Now, for a moment, just think about this. Think about what they're asking. Make us gods. Now that word make us means construct something. Make this. We want to have an image of God. A visible, tangible, manifestation, object of God that we can follow. Now, Again, just think about that for a minute. The commandment has already been declared. You shall have no other God before me. Do not make a graven image of me. They understand that. They're now asking Aaron, the brother of Moses, who is up on the mountain, make a tangible, tactile God for us. And I want you to remember one more thing remember they just came out of a civilization they had been there for 430 years a civilization that was filled with tangible manifestations of their gods and one of the most prominent was Apis who was a bull like God now do you, do you understand that sentence? maybe you don't remember the proper name Apis was, his, was the God but it was a bull like God Now, it will be interesting. That's exactly what Aaron's going to make. But they came out of, even though they were followers of Yahweh, they came out of a civilization where manifestations of the gods were everywhere. Okay? So they're just saying, maybe Moses isn't ever coming down. So make us something tangible that we can see and follow. So that's an extraordinary request. Now, what should Aaron have done? Aaron should sort have of immediately stepped and said, now look, what's the moral of God say? What is the standard we're supposed to follow? What's the nature of our God? What's the nature of Yahweh? You are asking a, me to do something that I absolutely cannot and will not do. That is not what he does. As for this fellow Moses, I love how the NIV translates that. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happening. Well, of course they do. Or at least they should. Absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. That's a romantic statement. None of you know what I mean. Romance is going out of your life, so forget it. (laughs) So how does Aaron respond? Aaron responds. Take off the gold earrings from your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. Where did they get all that from Egypt? Mm -hmm. That was part of what Egypt. I'm putting it crassly, but part of what Egypt had paid them for 430 years of slavery, as God had commanded. So all the people took off their earrings brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into the idol, an idol cast in the shape of a calf. The god Apis, A-P-I-S, in ancient Egypt was a fertility god, always evidenced as a bull. Remember, the typical Egyptian god, when he or she was depicted, was an animal-like body with a human head. Typically. Sometimes it was a human body with an animal head. So, Apis was a bull-like god, if you understand what I mean by that. That is probably what they have in mind. It was a very famous god in part of the Egyptian pantheon, but was associated with fertility. And, and sexual activity. And so it's just, to me, it's astonishing, but Ad, Aaron agrees to do this. And again, what does a leader do? A leader, if he believes what he's doing is right, leads the crowd, doesn't follow the crowd. So what does Aaron do? He follows the crowd. And take, instead of, taking the stand that he should have taken of the moral and ethical framework that God has already revealed and said, we cannot do this. That violates the moral law of God. He goes along with it. And then they said, these are the gods, it is plural, of Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. You know, I'm hesitating and making all these. I mean, just just think of that. Think of what they're saying. That bull shaped, that, that gold shaped like a bull that is somewhat like Apis, the god that was associated with civilization, that's the one that brought us up out of Egypt. And you're forgetting what did God do? We studied that much earlier in our study. God had made war on the entire Egyptian pantheon of gods. Had decimated their entire worldview, and now they're saying this God brought you out of Egypt. Rash, crass, crude, rebellious idolatry. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival now this is this is not just language. A festival to Yahweh. Your Bible should have Lord in capitals. Yahweh. They have this image of a bull and made of gold, and he says tomorrow he built an altar in front of the, which means he took stones and built an altar to offer sacrifices on. Tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. That's unbelievable. So the next day the people rose early. They didn't sleep in that day. Rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Now those two, those two, Titles, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, are central to the fellowship and worship of Israel. The burnt offering is a covering and atonement for sin. The fellowship offering associated with the peace offering is okay. The, the, the offering for sin has been done. Sin has been atoned for. Now we have a meal together in fellowship because God's taken care of our sin. And they're going to celebrate this too. At the base of Mount Horeb, in front of a bull god made of gold. I want you to be shocked by that, but you're just sitting there, but that's all right. So now, the base of the mountain, and this is just extraordinary, extraordinary, unbelievable, incredible, in the true meaning of that overused word, idolatry, defiance of God. This is exactly what God did not want them to do. But now they're doing, they're about to have a festival dedicated to him. John?
1: Yeah, uh, it, it sounds so radical and so strange. I talked to a contractor who built small homes for Native Americans on a reservation. And he went back a couple of years later to visit. Just he was passing through and thought, oh, sometimes nice everything's gone. The bathtubs were sitting outside for the horses to drink up. And, you know, we, we say that we would never do this. You know, we, we would, if we came out of a culture, I think we would revert back to that culture a lot easier than we would
0: like to think. Well, I don't disagree with, with you. Um, the only difference, I think, would be, John, that they were in Egypt 430 years, but they went into Egypt... At the behest and protection of Joseph, worshiping Yahweh and all that was a part of that, uh, and they remained loyal to him throughout those four hundred and thirty years from what the Bible says. but it helps us to perhaps see that the Egyptian culture and civilization is more ingrained in them than they were willing to admit, and they have and and what is really hard for me. And, and you were right, to understand it is, is an important part of why they did it. But the defiance of it is, to me, incredible because of what they had seen Yahweh do in the 10 plagues. As when we studied that, I can't remember if you were in the class by, at that time or not. But when we studied that, we went through each one of those plagues is an attack by Yahweh on one of the key linchpins of the Egyptian worldview. God is dismantling that before their very eyes and showing the inadequacy and um, impotence of the Egyptian worldview. And so they are willing to become like Egyptians when Moses had been away from them for 20 days, 25 days, 30 days, however many days it's been in the 40-day, 40 40-night 40 cycle. He's supposed to be up there. And it, just, it shows us, too, and this is really important to me because of what my role has been all my life. It's really important, once again, to draw attention to the significance of a godly leader. Because a leader, if that's a pastor in a church, the word pastor comes from a Latin word which means shepherd, which is a shepherd is the metaphor in the, in the New Testament. A, a leader of a church is a shepherd to people, shepherd to flock, because they can get off the track so easily and so quickly. And so, Aaron, if it would seem to me reasonable to conclude, Aaron would have said, no, we cannot do this. Do you not remember the moral law of God? Do you not remember everything God did for us in taking us out of Egypt? He dismantled everything you want to do. Oh, you're right, Aaron. Please forgive us, Aaron. We bow down to God again. That's not what happened. And it's the contrast between Moses, whom we'll be seeing in verse 7, and Aaron.
1: Timeline-wise, how long is this after they entered?
0: Uh, after they crossed the Red Sea? Well, um, it, it fourteen forty-six BC. They crossed the Red Sea. This is about fourteen forty-four BC. It's a little over a year later. Okay. So I mean, it's not that long. It's not that long since the plague. They would have remembered. Oh heavens, yes. Oh yes.
1: It's still like a generation separate.
0: No, this isn 't fifty years later. This is a year, maybe fifteen months at the most uh well, maybe sixteen months at the most but it's a it's a time span where but remember what they 've gone through this is that's been a rough journey if I don't remember, if you 've ever been in the Sinai that 's not a nice place to be that's That's rough territory and they've just you know, they went from oasis to oasis, and God provided with the manna but now you know at the base of the mountain and there's still Where's Moses? Maybe Moses has left us. You know, they, I love how they, I, t- I told you, this fellow Moses <laughs> who brought us up out of Egypt. Where is he? You know, so And it's just because God is spirit, it takes faith and trust to believe in all that God can do even when you can't see him, which is what Paul says in Romans 1. When, you, when you're like that, what do you do? You naturally make an idol. And you begin to worship the created thing instead of the Creator. That's what they're doing, or want to do, Woody.
2: I just, uh, I mean, you're soon gonna to get to the place where where the Lord uh, uh, says to Moses that there's stiff-necked people. Yes. And yeah. I didn't know what that meant, and I seen it again, and uh, my wife explained to me, it was kind of like uh, defiant,
0: you got it. You're that's right. exactly the posture you just, that's exactly what it means. Yep, that's yeah. exactly what it means. Stubborn, yeah. defiant, rebellious, stiff necked people. Yeah. Yep.
2: Like, I just didn't
1: know that phrase. Uh, we're, we're being challenged every day, maybe not in the same, with the same dynamic here. I mean, we're not. But, <clears throat> you know, in walking with God, how would this apply to us today? Because you said, Aaron could have said immediately to this temptation, no, and how how would you apply that to us today? We don't have a lot of golden calves. We don't have the history here. But we have our own history. And the tempter is constantly seeking to take us off the rails, the, our spiritual rails. How would you take that situation and apply it in today's situation for us?
0: Well, what you will see in the chapters that follow and when you read through the entire Old Testament, God keeps reminding the children of Israel, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who did this. I am the God who did this. History is important to God in the sense that history reminds us of the faithfulness and dependency that we have on God and so you're you're in a time a, a moment or a situation where you're being tempted uh remember all that God has done for you. Remember that God has been faithful, and remember when he said i'm using now language that's a part of the New Testament as well remember what Jesus said, "I will never leave you or forsake you i 'm going back to the Father, but i'm coming back for you I mean all of those." That is a part part of what we must constantly, constantly review when we're in difficult times. And there's also another, uh, uh, I think, strong appeal of the importance of memorization of Scripture. Now, I'm talking to men who, I'm the oldest man in this room, but as you get older, it gets more and more difficult to memorize because you forget But to memorize scripture, my wife, uh, she exercises every morning. She has index cards. She has verses. Mm -hmm. And as she's exercising, I I said to her a couple, because I'm home a little more than I used to be, I said, honey, I'm just reviewing my verses. (laughs) I mean, I thought, oh, my goodness. She's doing things I never knew she did. I mean, it's just really important. And all of that is a part of, because God is spirit. (laughs) And as we were talking a little earlier, until we get to heaven, we will never see God. Face to face, you know, where we we visibly see but it requires trade. But is the faith and trust that we place in God has it been evidence to be worthwhile? That's what the history of your life. You look back and say, "Yes, God has been faithful to me. Yes, God has. Yes, God. Yes, yes, yes." That's why I find it quite disturbing that many people today know nothing about history. And I'm not. I'm, I'm talking biblical history as well as I'm talking about the history of our country, yes. both its negative and positive. Because, as one of my friends used to say, how can you have a meaningful meeting if you don't have the minutes of the previous meetings? In other words, every meeting, every event has a context, and the context is only understood by history. And that, to me, that's. But now, I'll use a terrible example, but now, typical college curriculum, you have two electives in history, and it's not a survey of American history. It's sexual deviancy in 21st century America. That's a history course that you get credit for. What kind of context does that give you to understand anything? I have taught American history most of my life, except I was in leadership, and I'm telling you, I mean, I when I taught history, I taught it chronologically, I taught it thematically, I taught it cause and effect. My students are going to know the flow of American history. If you I Really, that's hardly done. My, my daughter, who has taught at Westside School, they don't have survey courses in history anymore. It's just, that's, that's not good. Let alone in our church, are we teaching, and this is history, are we teaching biblical history? Are we helping people to understand the context of God acting in time? Starts with Abraham, in terms of the covenant, and goes on through Jesus. That's what the Old Testament's about. The New Testament is what Jesus does and what those whom he disciples do after he leaves and goes back to the Father. I mean, that's just, so we are part of that context. If you don't know the context, you're thinking, well, we're the only ones who have ever struggled with this. I'm getting, that's my answer to his question. Five minutes later, I answer his Thank question. You. All right, can I go on? Perfect. Thank you. Verse 7. Now, here's the contrast between Aaron and Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, remember, Moses is up on Mount Horeb. Go down. Notice the pronouns. Because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. What do you observe there? Your. your the pronoun your. <clears throat> What's God doing here?
2: He's putting the responsibility on Moses. So, and, and disassociating
0: himself. Say it again, please. He's
2: disassociating
0: himself. He's disassociating himself. Do you think he really means it? Does God really mean this? Well, <laughs> in a way. Now listen. And I think I'm on solid ground here because of what follows. God is testing Moses. You are their leader. You are their deliverer. You are going to take them to the promised land. Aaron failed. What are you going to do? They're your people. You have the stewardship responsibility over them. Now, it's neat how God does this, how he presses Moses, but we'll see this develop. Baby? Uh, yeah.
2: Uh, when, you know, they build the calf because they couldn't see Moses, so when they separated themselves from God, God is in, in, in return, you know, separating himself from them and says, they are looking for you, and because they didn't see you, they built the calf. They are not looking for me. So, is
0: that... I think that's that's part of it. I mean, Moses, you're our contact with God. Moses is our contact with God, so to speak. They're intermediary with God. And since he's not here, what do we do? we got to have some visible manifestation. Let's build a camp like they did in Egypt. Aaron, good idea. Let's do it. Which is just, you know. you think
2: this respect, uh, reflects some uh, failure on Moses' part mm. to teach or train or prepare for
0: That's a great question, Jim. Um, maybe I, I don't. I don't want to completely put it on Moses' shoulders because remember, everything that Moses had gone through, Aaron had gone through with him, and. So it wasn't like Moses, sorry, Aaron came along at the last minute. I mean, when he was called to be the deliverer, one of the arguments God used to answer his, remember, he gave five reasons why he's not going to be delivered. And one of them was, you know, I can't speak, I can't, I'll send you Aaron. And so Aaron is with him from day one. But in a, in a way, maybe, but I think it, the onus really is on Aaron's shoulders, though. Aaron evidences a lack of leadership here. He really does. And so it, the, the language of verse 7 has multiple applications to it. It really it really does. And perhaps some of it is Moses. Maybe you didn't do enough to teach everybody. I, I don't know. But, uh, Fred. So the other thing that comes to my mind
2: is that, that God being a jealous God exactly. is upset Exactly circumstances, and he's looking back at you know Adam Eve, he's looking back at all the other places where Israel has disappointed him, and and he's going to he's going to set it straight through Moses.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that the issue is going to be: is Moses going to stand for that? And and this is an important question. Does Moses going to stand for him saying, "Your people"? You brought, is Moses going to let him get, let's put it humanly, is Moses going to let God get away with that? All right, let's go on, verse 8, they have become quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of calf. They bow down to it and sacrifice to it, said, these are the gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and here's Woody's word, they are a stiff necked people. Now, what he explained to us what stiff neck meant? He modeled it for us. So you got that in your mind. Never, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make you, i.e. Moses, into a great nation. Now here again, I want you to consider this. Two things. Is Moses going to let God get away with us? Now, I hope you understand the spirit which I'm saying that. Your people, you brought him up. And God says, Get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to wipe him out. So, is verse 7 through verse 10 a test of Moses' leadership? Sure. Absolutely. Verse, nine, verse 11. I think this is true for all translations. What's the first word of verse 11? But. Now remember, but is always a word of contrast. So now Moses is going to step up and challenge how God has framed this. But Jim has a question.
2: No, it's not a question. It's an observation. Sure. I mean, it's not an idle threat because the Lord did exactly Absolutely. the same thing when we came out of and did not go into the promised land.
0: That's right. Out entire generation. That's right. And I mean, there are other examples that we studied in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, where God does wipe out a civilization. So you're right. It's not an idle, empty threat. Moses knows he can do this. So is what is Moses going to do with what God said? That's why the word but in verse 11 is so important. Now notice the language. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out? Moses is not, and I hope you understand the spirit which I'm saying this. Moses is not letting God get away with us. They're not my people, God. They're your people. That's why, in some ways, 7 through 10 is a test of Moses. It's a test. What is Moses going to do? I mean, is he going to say, yes, Lord, you're right. They're so stiff-necked. Wipe them out. I'm willing. Start over with me. My two boys, they'll start with those. Okay, we'll rebuild the nation. Good idea, Lord. No, because remember, remember something. When Moses says, your people, you, remember the Abrahamic Covenant. Mm-hmm. An unconditional, unilateral covenant God has made. And so what what Moses this is really, really important, what Moses is doing is it's appealing to God based on the covenant. They are your people, God. You said to Abraham, I'm gonna make of you a people as mm-hmm. numerous as the stars, sky, and sand seashore. Lord, these are your people. They're yours. They're not mine. They're yours. You brought them out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. And look at the logic Moses uses here. First of all, he says, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your face anger. Relent. Do not bring this disaster on your people. This occurs over and over again in the Old Testament. God, your reputation is at stake here. You said through me, let my people go to Pharaoh. And if you don't let my people go, I will. And then that's what leads to the 10 plagues. So God if you wipe them out at the base of Mount Horeb, the Egyptian people are going to say, "See, they're just like our gods. They're f- they're 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 uh, capricious. They change their minds constantly. We're the real enemy." That's not what they said to us. So God, your reputation's at stake. That's why I really think seven through ten is a real test of Moses' leadership. How does Moses understand his role? Mm. How does Moses understand God's relationship with these covenant people? And so that's why in verse 13, he brings up the covenant. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Why is he called Israel? Who's Israel? That's the covenant name of Jacob. Remember? Back chapter 32 of Genesis. To whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and I'll give your descendants all the land I promised them and it'll be their inheritance forever. So here's Moses. Does he pass the test? God said to him, go down. They're your people, people you brought up, they're, they're rebelling. They're building a calf. They're going to worship tomorrow. I'm going to wipe them out. Start with you. And Moses says, no, Lord. They're your people. Your reputation is at stake. You're in an unconditional covenant relationship with them. God, you can't do that. Moses is the leader. It's a great contrast between Aaron and Moses here. So Moses is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. Does he have failures? Yes. We We won't study that in this go-around of what we're studying, but in Numbers 20 is a great failure of Moses. But he's still, he's like David. He's a man after God's own heart. He's, he's a key individual in his faith and his trust. And that's just. I think it's remarkable how he deals with God. He has a clear understanding of the covenant, a clear understanding of his role. He's not going to let God get away with that kind of language, if I can put it that way, humanly speaking.
1: Until we're tested, uh, our, our faith isn't strengthened a lot of times, Exactly. Can you say, John? Exactly. That so it, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing when we men fall into a test that we don't yield to. Uh, if we make a quick decision, no, that's not what God wants of my life, that we are strengthened in our faith and in the Lord. Exactly. Right. And And we, we do grow. Mm -hmm. And uh, so temptation isn't necessarily bad, or this trial isn't necessarily a bad one for Moses, right? Well, no,
0: No, it is very positive, and it uh, it is something through which I think Moses will grow more and more in the fortitude and clarity of understanding of who he is, what his role is, and he, all, he always will stand in the gap between God and the people. This isn't the first time. This is the only time it's going to happen. For the next 40 years, it's going to happen a lot. Where I mean, the, the children of Israel are going to, well, actually more than that, because, well, there's a whole bunch of things that are coming up. But God will do this again. And, and Moses will say, God, Remember. And it's just a constant test and reminder, Moses, this is your role. These people are stiff-necked, stubborn. They're really hard. They're like you and I. But, you know, they're going to be really hard to deal with. But Moses, that's your responsibility. I don't want to keep reminding you. And so I just, I just love this. I, I, Lord, they're your people. You brought them out. Now, what are the Egyptians going to say if you wipe them out? Is that what you want on your, you want that on your record, God? Is that what you want on your resume? I'm being real funny here, but I mean, that's really what he's saying. He's saying, God, don't forget the covenant. Do you think God forgot those things? No. It's a reminder of the uniqueness of the children of Israel.
2: You know, it's remarkable the change of Moses because he was afraid to face oh. off with the Pharaoh, oh. and was asking God for Aaron to help him. Yeah. Now Aaron failed, and he's yeah. not facing up with Pharaoh; he's facing up with God. Himself. That's right. That's so it's right. A change of leadership. And yeah, he is. Re- on of, you know, he's Sinai really. is great. If you have a nice jeep, so. you know what? Sinai is not that bad if you have a nice jeep, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I've never experienced it being nice, but anyway, there. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I'm just glad that I was not leading the children of Israel at Mount Horeb, I really want. Verse 14. Then the Lord, now the NIV translates it, relented. And did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Uh, the Hebrew word there is uh, nachem. and that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's, it's really important that you understand the real meaning and depth of that word. It's another course of action. God is at a fork in the road. Am I going to wipe these people out? Or am I going to continue the covenant relationship with them? And obviously, what God chooses to do. Did he have the power and authority to wipe them out? Yes. Yes. But he is Nachim. He's following the course of action that is determined by the covenant. Do you understand that sentence? That the way I uttered that sentence is very important. Nachim, he is choosing the course of action that's determined by the covenant. When God entered into an unconditional covenant relationship with Abraham, this was a foregone conclusion. Knows Moses needed to be reminded of that. And he clearly, clearly exercises that understanding. So, I mean, it's just, it's an incredible dialogue filled with a lot of nuances that help us to understand that what God is doing here is testing Moses, but also God is, excuse me, Moses is reaffirming the clarity of his understanding of his role. I just love that. God, your reputation's at stake. And you know, God's reputation is at stake in each one of our lives. That's why every time we are together, when I pray, do you remember how I end the prayer? Lord, help us to represent you well. You follow me? People see God through how we live our lives. We represent him. We want to represent him well. All right. Can I move on? Verse 15. For some (laughs) illusion, I thought we would do these three chapters in one hour. Boy, I, I must have been on planet Pluto when I was thinking that way. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The ta- tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God. And that is to be understood literally. And Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting. Remember I drew that on the board a couple of weeks ago, the mountain. Joshua's halfway up. Moses is on top. So he's coming down, he meets Joshua. There's a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, no, it's a sound of victory. It's a sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. Now, what I want you to notice, um, the series of things, there are actually four things Moses does here. Starting in verse 19, there are four actions, four deliberate actions that Moses does and takes. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the front of the mountain. That's action number one. That's, that's really remarkable. Is that done out of anger? Yes. Is that something he should have done? I, I don't know. But the moral law of God is at stake, and so he shatters it in front of the people you have violated the moral law of God. You are treating it as those broken pieces there. Number two, and he took, this is verse 20, and he took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire. So he melts it down in the fire. He burns it. Then, ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Now, just think, think of the uh, symbolic value of this action. What did they said? Aaron, build us a God that we can see, tactile, tangible God that we can see. Okay, we'll make Apis. We'll make a golden calf. So Moses burns that in the fire. It melts down, grinds it into powder, mixes it with water. and so What's it demonstrating? The impotence. You know what I mean by impotence? The impotence of an idol and the consequences of sin. You must drink this now. The impotence. You, you, said, that was, you said that was Yahweh. You said that was the one that brought you out of Egypt. I just melted it in the fire and ground it into fine dust and mixed it with the water and I'll drink it. The impotence of the stupidity of idolatry and the consequence of sin. Now you live with it. Number three, he said to Aaron, what did, this is verse 21 now, the third action. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? He is now, this is Moses, is putting the onus of responsibility on the leader. That to me, I, I used to teach leadership. I was in leadership. This is really important. The responsibility of leadership to lead and guide the flock. Moses, so Moses said, Aaron, you didn't do that. You led them into sin. I'm preaching now, I'm sorry. But you led them into sin. Do not be angry. This is is Aaron's response. It's quite remarkable. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. What word would you use to describe that response? Rationalization. Victimization. It isn't my fault, Aaron Moses. I'm not the one who's at fault. It's just people. You know what they're like.
2: They
0: made me do it. Yeah, they made me do it. I'm the victim here, Lord. The serpent rises again. Yeah, right. I mean, does that sound familiar? That's. I mean, that's exactly what you go way back to Genesis three. That's exactly what Adam said. Remember? Mm -hmm. Well, God, you gave her to me. I'm the victim here. I'm sorry. Uh, Andrew, I'm sorry. You're You're going to get complaints that Eckman's in there preaching. Okay. And they said, make us gods who will go before us as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any jewelry, take it off and gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bold, blatant lie. You know, it, to me, it's just, but it is, Aaron is confronted with the gross negligence as a leader. And he does the typical thing he, I'm the victim. He rationalizes. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control until he became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. So the fourth action, and it really goes on through the end of the cha- chapter, Moses will assert leadership. You must now choose. Are you going to be with this group that led to idolatry? Or are you going to stand for the Lord? And it's really remarkable, the end of, of the verse, verse 26, and all the Levites rallied to him. You remember who the Levites are. And he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword on his side. Now he's speaking to the Levites. Go back and forth through the camp, from one to the end to the other, killing each brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. That day about 3,000 of the people died. And Moses said, you have set, you're set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he just blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Atonement means to cover. So, so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed they have made themselves sons of gold, gods of gold, but now please, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. There's a leader. Again, Moses is the intermediary. He's the intercessor. He comes between the people of God and he begs God to forgive them. And he says, God, if you won't, blot my name out of the book. What book? The book of life, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, and many other verses in the Bible. The book that lists all of those who will be in eternity. What's Moses saying? Blot my name out, but save them. That's a leader. It's a remarkable servant. Lord, I know what they've done. I mean, here, here again you see, What The dialogue in verses 7 through 10 and all that. Now, here again, Moses, the leader. Lord, if you can't find it in your heart to forgive them, blot my name out in their place. But please, please keep your covenant promise to them. And the Lord replied, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin and the lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the children of Israel, with the calf Aaron had made so what we don't know and the scripture is not specific here verse 28 3000 was that random 3000 we would assume it's an inference but we would assume these were the leaders that provoked that idolatry and then others that died from the plague there's not a number to that but god is choosing to to in effect kill those who are responsible for this this idolatry. He's not killing everybody. But we, we would I think it's reasonable to infer these are the leaders of that idolatry. And God is uh, is taking their life. Uh, what do you whoever had uh, hand up uh,
2: I was a little confused about that part. He said uh, put your sword on your side, each of you go to and fro uh, gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you to kill his brother and his compassion and his neighbor. Uh, I didn't understand if they were telling him to kill, if the Levites were to kill their brother? Or, does
0: he Uh, consider them all brothers? Yeah, I think that's, it's more uh, of perhaps not specifically your biological brother, but your, your brother in turn, because they're all related in the sense they're all the children of Jacob, you know, 12 sons. But I mean, it could be. It, some of, of them may have actually killed their biological brother. But that's why when the number is 3,000, because remember, we talked about the number. The number is close to 1.5 million, all told. So the inference is, this is probably the leadership core of the idolatry. And so, um, I I don't think we should, and and I I think it's reasonable to draw this inference. I don't think this is just a Levites going through and randomly killing people. You you know what I mean? In other words, it's just summarizing what they did, and that number, these are the people who are the leaders, and then God chooses through a plague, we don't know what that means exactly, We assume it usually is some kind of a disease or whatever, but God is dealing with others who are to be held accountable as well. So there is this clear consequence of the sin which they committed. And Moses takes uh, four direct actions, which we have just summarized from 19 through the end of the chapter. And now, from God's perspective, it's over. Mm -hmm. From God's perspective, it's been dealt with. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's not now. Now the question is, is God going to go with him? He says, my angel will go before you, but I'm not. Does God mean that? Is that really what he's going to do? That's what the next two chapters are about. Okay. We have one of three done. Any questions or comments or Jim? I'm
2: sorry? I'm sorry accountability
0: for this? He escapes any specific accountability at this point, apparently. I'm bothered by the fact that after his lame excuse that ends in verse uh, 24, Moses doesn't do something. But we'll see more about Aaron later on, not so much in this book, but later on in Numbers and so on. But yeah, at least at this point. Don't ask me to explain that, because I can't. Leadership <laughs> is
2: an awesome thing, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, you know,
0: it is. It is. A... it is. It is. It is. And, uh, I, mean, we must, I mean, we must assume, uh, Jim, uh, be, because of the silence of the text here, that God, uh, or rather Moses, forgives his brother, because obviously he continues to have a leadership role, But there are some things that are going to change, which, again, is a little beyond our study of Exodus. See more of it in Numbers, where that relationship between Moses and Aaron has changed. Moses does not trust Aaron as much as he used to. More and more he's trusting Joshua. And that's partly because he will be the new leader when when Moses dies. So I think it affects that relationship, but there's not an immediate um, disciplinary judgment from the Lord here, at least as far as we can see.
1: Were the um, were the Levites a tribe at this time, or they are, had they been designated priests by this time?
0: It's a good question. Um, the, they they are a tribe. They're one of the twelve yeah. uh, tribes of, of Israel. Um, the formal nature of what God's going to have them do is is coming up. It's so coming at this up. point, that formal, clear: you are the priest. You will administer all the sacrifices. You will teach the people the law. That has not been clarified yet. That's a good but, question. But
1: they, at this time, as a tribe, declared their loyalty. That's right.
0: They Moses. are faithful and loyal, and that's why Moses calls them out. They step across the line, we're with you, Moses. And that's really important. So the assumption, to, excuse me, so the inference and assumption we can draw is that the Levites were not involved at all in any of this, which is really important.
2: Is the, the Pentateuch, is that seven, five different groups at a similar period in time?
0: Uh, Genesis is totally separate, and in a sense, Leviticus is totally separate, but Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are often covering the same events, Uh, particularly Exodus and Numbers. Deuteronomy is a little more about that second generation, you know, after the first generation dies in the 40 years of wandering, but Numbers and Exodus are often looking at the same events. Great questions. Chapter 33. Good night. It's almost 20 already. Now, we'll not get this done. I was under the illusion because Jim, uh, or I mean, Jim, Fred, and Woody, and Joel, I wrote to them and sent them the notes uh, for our study after we're done with Exodus with this Jude. So I don't know. Did you send that, Fred? Okay, Fred sent that. You might look in the email that came out this week. So he'll send that again and again and again. I think, but uh, we will meet next week, and we'll, Lord willing, just finish or get very close to finishing the Book of Exodus. But what we'll study after that is the Book of Jude, little New Testament treasure that I'm almost convinced every one of you in this room has never studied in depth. That's going to end. You're going to really, you're going to love the Book of Jude. It's one of my favorite New Testament books. I really mean that. So, the little, little gem. It's only one chapter, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 30, 30, 33, Verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people, you brought up out of the land, and go up to the land. I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, God is now about to fulfill the second major part of the covenant promise. First part, I will make from you a people as large as the sand of the shore and the stars of the sky. This is a large nation. Now, he said, verse 7, chapter 12, I'm going to give you land. He's about to fulfill that promise. <clears throat> I will send an angel before you that takes you back to verse 34. Now, you'll see in a little bit, that's going to be tested by Moses. But anyway, and I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. Who are they? They are the people that inhabit the, the, the promised land what is called generically Canaan, and all the ites people, I-T-E-S people, the ites people inhabit Canaan.
2: And they all still have the various gods, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. A very, very pagan, very immoral Canaanite civilization. It's not a united civilization. It's a bunch of city-states that are all over Canaan. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> now, what does that mean? Does that mean God is, you know, he's now an absentee landlord? He's going back, and he and Gabriel are going to, no. know. It just means, listen, my personal presence is not going with you. Moses is going to challenge that. We won't get to that day because we're almost out of time. But Moses is going to challenge that in just a little bit. Verse 4, when the people heard these distressing words, what distressing words? That God was not going to go with them, his personal presence. So they began to mourn, verse 4, and no one put any ornaments. For the Lord had said, tell the Israelites your stiff-necked people, if I were to go with you, even for a moment I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. All of the stuff they brought out of Egypt. All the stuff that had been used to pay back for 430 <coughs> years of slavery. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. What camp? The camp where all the Israelites were, were camping at the battle, a base of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and called it a tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go up to the tent. A meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out at the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he returned to the tent. And Moses went into the tent. The pillar of cloud would come down stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Now, what, what is this saying to us? It's not so much isolating a specific event. It's summarizing for us the pattern. What was the pattern of Moses as a leader? He's modeling intimacy with God. He had this special uh, nickname, you saw that in in verse 7, it's nicknamed the tent of meeting. What does that mean? That's where Moses would meet, fellowship, pray, and talk with God. And it was it was so important, it tells us that the people would watch him do it. What's Moses doing? He's a leader modeling intimacy with God, which is what this is all about. So you have this strange, do you know what juxtaposition is? Mm-hmm. You have this strange, God is saying, I'm not going to go up with you. My personal presence, I'm not going to do it. And yet here you see Moses enjoying this remarkable intimacy with God. Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay with the entrance. while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar, standing at the entrance of the street, they stood up and worshiped at the entrance of the tent. And Moses would speak, and this is what we were talking about at the beginning, face to face, as one speaks to a friend. The operative part of that verse is as one speaks to a friend. Intimacy. The personal intimacy of this relationship. Then Moses returned to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Meaning say Now here, this is what I, I think in response to Fred's question a bit ago. What we're starting to see is Joshua is slowly starting to replace Aaron in leadership. Because this is this the third time we've seen Joshua mentioned in these in these chapters? Now, is this
2: the tent? Is, the tent to, is Joshua at the tent of
0: meeting? That's correct. He's at the tent of meeting. He is enjoying, and that's why this is really important. It, it, I mean, it's just telling you. That Joshua is slowly replacing Aaron, because jo- we know this, because we know how the Bible goes, but Joshua will replace Moses. Joshua will be the new leader when Moses dies. But so God, or I, maybe you should put it this way, Moses is preparing Joshua, but so is God. So in a, in a very real sense, verse 7 through verse 11 is like a parenthesis. God said, I'm not going up with you. This really affects the people. Parenthesis. But Moses still enjoyed astonishing intimacy with God. And this moved the people because they watched Moses go into the tent of meeting and they would stand. So, I mean, it's, the impact, the impact of what Moses does as a leader is important for the people to see. God has not left us, God has mm-hmm. not deserted us. Mm-hmm. Our leader still enjoys intimacy and fellowship with God. And it's that basis that causes Moses to make three requests of God, and they start in verse 12. So uh, I'll introduce this because we're almost out of time. But are you with me? You understand what's doing? This is kind of the structure of this. You have this seemingly very tragic situation. God said, I'm not going to go up with you. Then you have the parenthesis that Moses still enjoys this very significant intimacy with God, as does Joshua. So it's on that basis that God, excuse me, Moses goes to God and makes three requests of him, which we will cover next week because we're almost out of time. Can we have this kind of
1: intimacy today?
0: Yes. That was a quick answer, John. Yes, I mean <laughs> that's a dismissal. <laughs> well, yes, I mean that's the that's the <laughs> th- that's the blessing of the finished work of Christ that you and I you can have you and I can have twenty four seven intimacy with God. Uh, there's no longer the need for a priest. There's no longer the need for an interceder. There's no longer the need for any intermediary. You have twenty four seven access to God, and that's why Jesus says, "I'm going back to the Father." and ask the Father anything in my name, anything you want to talk to God about. I told you before, I love Rosalind Rinker's definition of prayer. It's a dialogue between two people who love one another. That is the intimacy. What Moses is summarized here, what Moses enjoyed with God that we just quickly read about is the same intimacy you can enjoy with God. Face-to-face intimacy in in that that. I, Jesus says this. I, I no longer call you my. I call you my friend. You know, when you th- you got to think about it, meditate on that. Oh my goodness, Yahweh is calling me his friend. And that's the result of what Christ has done for us. So it's, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this, in this <laughs> class, but that's one of those things we can really be excited about. Next week, I want to go through, and I'm going to pick right up. Because I, Moses goes to God and asks for three things. So that's where we'll pick up. Would he help me remember that? I start with verse 12. Don't let me forget that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truthfulness of it. Thank you for the dependability of it. And we thank you for, among other things, the significant contrast in leadership that we study today. And I just absolutely love how Moses dialogs with you, Lord. You say to him, your people, that you brought God's, and Moses says, no, Lord, they're your people. They're not mine. What a leader. What a, what a man who clearly understood the covenant, clearly understood your relationship with the people of Israel. And Lord Fred's question was such an appropriate one. Can we enjoy the same intimacy with you that Moses evidenced there in chapter 33? Yes, we can. We can enjoy the same 24-7 access to you. We can tell you anything on our heart. We can share anything with you because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. So we praise you today for that as we go our separate ways. Uh, We ask your blessing and watch care over everyone. We ask that you will help us, indeed enable us to represent you well in all we do and say today in Christ's name, amen. See you next week.